0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults.
1: And I'm her dad. I'm Stephen Mather. I'm these days an organisational psychologist, but I was raised in a cultic group. So, welcome to the podcast.
0: Did you know I've been lying on the intro this whole time?
1: Because have you? Why?
0: Well I always say a media graduate but that's not entirely mm. true. I'm a media and English graduate.
1: Well yes. Surprise
0: yeah. everyone. I also half my degree <laughs> is English literature.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well yeah. I am I I think I wrote the introduction so it's probably my fault that um but um but yeah, I I, I said media because I thought that's more sort of relevant but It is, yeah. yeah but you I know I suppose, you know. It is true yeah. technically you you are. Sneaker, of course sneaker you, book you do know your... That yeah exactly yeah (laughs) okay cool um good well today it's topic um so you might have noticed listeners if you're new to the podcast because we've had quite an, uh, an increase in listeners over the last few weeks um last month or so so if you're kind of new here welcome thanks for joining us again we generally have a topic episode, which is me and Celine exploring a topic um, related to cults, and then the following week we tend to have a guest. So that's the way we normally do it. Sometimes it it doesn't quite work out, but that's how we normally operate. So this week is a topic episode, and it's been um, it's been something that I've wanted to talk about really this week because uh, we've had something happen in the UK that's very parochial, I suppose, but it's absolutely has taken the country by storm um so i want to talk about that very briefly but um it is relevant to organizations and, and a wider question um so we've had this thing called the post office scandal that has really hit the headlines it's actually been going on for 20 years but only now because there was a dramatization of it on tv um has it really captured the imagination? Um, and you just read an article about it. Do you want to summarise what you've read about it, something?
0: So yeah, I read like a quick BBC. What is going on with the post office scandal? So it was, it was designed, in, you know, explicitly for someone like me who's googling yeah. what is going on because mm. <laughs> you know start yeah. hearing it, um, <laughs> mm. but I don't really know what it means. So what I read was that basically there was a software called Horizon that was to be used for basically the bookkeeping. Oh, it's like a software form.
1: Yeah. Can I just, sorry to interrupt. I've asked you to do it and I'm now interrupting you, but I just wanted to, for, for listeners that are not based in the UK, they might not, I mean, obviously everybody has post offices in every country, but they're all organized yeah, a bit we differently. Yeah, we have a
0: government-owned postal service. Yeah, so right. yeah. if we start there, we have a government-owned postal service, and that's probably key to know at the top. Mm-hmm. Number two, they um, there was a software that was buggy, this software was around the bookkeeping um, mm. the um people that handled that side of things in terms of like the post masters and mistresses that they're referred to it sounds very mm. old-fashioned mm. doesn't it but i suppose it it's is. an old system yeah, yeah. um yeah. But anyway they were um i think some of them start to notice it's buggy don't they because they yeah. start to worry um Mm. And um, so I, I saw one of the lines in this article even says some people started trying to put their own money into the accounts to mm. balance them because they were That's worried right. about wording, potential repercussions, um, which it would seem they were wor- right to be worried about because mm. quickly it starts, the finger begins to be pointed at these postmasters and mistresses that are um, using this software to balance the, or, you know, to enable them to balance the books and so on. Um people start going to prison, um, being convicted, mm. um, losing their livelihoods. Um, you know, I think it affected, you know, people said it affected their lives in general because people thought, mm. you know, they were criminals, that they were liars, yep. you know. yeah, um, Affecting relationships and so on.
1: Yeah, some people ended up taking their own lives because of it as well. Yeah. So it's really, yeah. really tragic.
0: And it's affected a lot of people as well. I think, mm. you know, there were trialing quite a mm. lot of people for this
1: um yeah there's there's a couple of extra things to to say you know one is that these people who these postmasters and mistresses are generally um often they're they're older um they're, they're like it's like their retirement plan really so they're and they're kind of pillars of the community you know imagine a little village you just got a post office in it and they also run the local shop um, and, you know, it's kind of just part of the village or town, um, and it's it's got that very English sort of quaintness about it, um, I think, and that's part of, I think, the shock of this. You know, you've got these people who are just ordinary people, small business people. They run them themselves, so it's their own business. Um, it's like a franchise system. Um, so if anything is short, if they're short on uh, on the... Uh, accounts each week then they're expected to put the money in but we're talking about thousands of pounds They on the um, there was a TV dramatisation starring Toby Jones who's quite a well known English actor um, and in this we see one of the postmistresses because this is the thing, they were all calling the helpline saying look I'm really having trouble with this, I'm really worried about this can you please help me and so instead of helping them they kind of they made it worse. You know, on one of the occasions, they, they talked her through doing something and it doubled the amount that she now owed. Um, they then send people round. Um, and the other thing to note that is a kind of peculiarity of, of the British Postal Service, it's because it's so old, it's hundreds of years old, is that the post office have their own investigation and prosecution. Uh, prosecution powers so unlike most businesses where you'd have to call the police in they don't need to do that they do it themselves so literally the post office was sending them to prison um, absolutely shocking um, it's it's been a big scandal obviously and this has gone on for 20 years people have died in the meantime still owing this money it's ruined people's lives yeah, it's it has been shocking. deemed
0: their due compensation hasn't it yeah
1: but they've so far they've only got a small amount because there's so many people involved. It had to be split amongst the, the, uh, how many, I think there was
0: at least like 500.
1: Yeah. It was 500 in, in the first tranche, but there's more to come. So yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a real scandal. Um, if you're not in the UK, you, you can watch it through a vpn um itv is the app so you can watch it that way and at the moment that's the only way you're gonna be able to watch it um but the story is everywhere you know you can read about the story it's been i've heard about this story on podcasts for quite some time but only now is it really taken off and the reason why i wanted to talk about this today is i know it is a little bit parochial but is because when you say it,
0: parochial what do you mean <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do I mean well it's a bit local you know it's yeah. kind of uh, only only people from the UK kind of will know about this story but the reason why it's important bearing in mind that most of our listeners are not in the UK but it's another example of an organization um, or the people in an organization behaving really really badly um and sometimes in in organizations where they behave badly it's Obvious why they're doing it is because they're greedy and they want mm. money. You know, it's often money's at the heart of it. But in this case, and and in many cases, and we've probably all seen it in our own work lives. People do some pretty ethically indefensible things on behalf of an organisation, on behalf of their company. Um, and there doesn't seem to be that much in it for them. It's just because it's their company. They work for that company. Mm. You know, these people that did this terrible thing to all these postmasters and mistresses, they didn't get anything out of it. It wasn't like they were, not directly anyway, you know. I mean, obviously, ultimately, I suppose, they, they didn't want to take the losses for the company and that would have looked bad for them. But... you don't get the sense that people in this are rubbing their hands thinking, I'm going to make this person suffer and that's going to make me some money somewhere. It's just the system. It's the way that the system worked um, and the decisions that individual managers, senior managers and middle managers made at the time. And that I think is fascinating. And it, it got me thinking about, you know, cults and religious organizations as well, where people do some pretty horrific things Um, and you have to ask why you know what's happening psychologically here why are people doing awful things for their religion or their cult or their business so that's that's the relevance for me here if people can behave like that in in the post office um, because they think they're doing it on behalf of their organization then you know obviously it can happen in in cults and other organizations too so yeah, I think it's quite interesting. What are the mechanisms? So that's really what I want to explore.
0: And I think you said um, that you wanted to talk about this in kind of three segments. So yeah, should we start right. with the beginning? Let's yeah. Start so with the, th-
1: the three, yeah, the three segments are organizational psychology. So um, how, what does organizational psychology tell us about? This sort of phenomena, um, and then I want to talk about individual psychology. So I'm going to touch on something called the Dark Triad today. I wanted to talk about the Dark Triad for quite some time because it's really cool. It does um, sound it's got. Quite- that- cool name It feels like some, yeah
0: it feels very anime i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> it feels yeah. like someone should like look look up dramatically and you know the glasses glint and they're like it's the dark triad <laughs> it's
1: the dark triad so we're going to talk about that um and then the other one is obviously we want to bring it back to cults and um uh religious settings as well i suppose so um let's start with the organizational psychology um i'm, I'm going to quote some papers but i'm not going to bore you hopefully <laughs> with them and um, i'll put the links on the uh show notes if people want to read these papers they can um they're all open access so you can you can download and read them there's three papers there's there's one particular researcher who seems to come up quite a bit on this research called Umfres. it's a very strange name so this paper umfress bingham and Mitchell. The title of the paper is Unethical Behaviour in the Name of the Company The moder- Moderating Effect of Organisational Identification and Positive Reciprocity Beliefs on Unethical Pro Organisational Behaviour. So it's
0: only a small title.
1: As always, a snappy title. Absolutely yeah, um,
0: rolls off the tongue. Academics
1: This is what you have to put up with when you're doing academic research. Um basically they tested whether Um, it was all about identification because I think that's the first thing that I would go to you know is it because you identify with your business so when you start a company and we've all done this you know when you first start you're new and if you like working there and even if you don't like working there there's a kind of element of this is now my tribe you know this is my I identify with this organization
0: immediately you're in a you all refer to yourself as we that's right
1: it's an in-group isn't it
0: yeah it is very very much so because the company wants you to be bought in and go on about buy-in all the time
1: absolutely yeah yeah it is yeah that's it's a very interesting term that buy-in isn't it it's like um you're it gives you the sense of a transaction there you're giving something of yourself and you're getting something in return um yeah that's what organizations want so this um identity is it a sense of identity that you're identifying with the organization that means that you're willing to do unethical things Um, so they tested whether this was the factor a sense of identification with the organization does it increase unethical what they call unethical pro-organizational behavior and again with academics they always like to give it three letter acronyms so it gets called a UPB so in the Documentation is all UPB, but so it's unethical pro organizational behavior, in other words, doing bad things for the good of the company, and whether this was amplified by the strength of the individual's reciprocity beliefs. So, actually, there's two factors they're trying to research here one is this feeling of identification, and the other is this reciprocity beliefs. So, reciprocity beliefs are basically you thinking that if I if I'm loyal to the company, then the company will give me something back in return. So there's, you know, the, it, it is that important as well? This These beliefs about this reciprocity. So have you got any questions before I go on?
0: No, so are we are going to start with the identity bit and then we'll do the reciprocity
1: Yeah, bit? well, w- what they found, I'll, I'll just give you the results of the study. Um, there were two, they actually have two studies in this paper um, and I'll read the, results from study two it says results from study two are consistent with the findings from study one so they basically agree with each other Um, organizational identification was not significantly and directly related to upb which i found fascinating and surprising as did they because their first hypothesis was that identification with the organization would itself be significant so but these are uh, they
0: found it wasn't they
1: found it wasn't yeah so this is all done through survey data so that people are asked to fill in surveys and and i think there was also there may have been an experiment in this as well um but they they couldn't find any statistically significant effect there um on its own so this suggests that organizational identification alone does not provide enough impetus for upb However. We again found support for the organizational identification times the positive reciprocity beliefs interaction. In other words, you have to have the two at the same time. So these two things work together. So a sense of identification with the organization multiplied by the amount of positive reciprocity beliefs. So the amount that I think you know I'm likely to get rewarded for this sort of behavior. Um those two things together will make people more likely to do unethical things for the sake of the organization which i think is quite interesting
0: that is interesting isn't it so and and yeah that's that's by far the motivating factor in this over the the over the identity part which is
1: yeah, yeah, which generally, surprised what we, what we me. Talk
0: about all the time identity, don't we? So you'd think that yeah. be...
1: So trying to relate this to, um, you know, religious settings or cult settings. So, you know, you think about uh, my old group, the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, you have people doing things like telling lies, essentially, about what their organisation does. Oh. I should mention, um, this week is the first week of the trial in Norway. Um, So, listeners, if you've not listened yet to Jan Frode Nielsen, his interview, I I suggest you do that um, because it's absolutely fascinating. But um, I think Jan's, he's not doing anything until Friday. I think he's going to be one of the witnesses for the the state on Friday, I do believe he said. Um, But here you have the organization essentially denying that shunning does anything other than stop spiritual association that normal family association is not affected um when their own drama which incidentally was played in the courtroom demonstrates Mm. that that isn't true and so you're you're left thinking well how can these people some of whom are actually jehovah's witnesses how can they say things that are clearly not true this is a lie that's unethical Mm -hmm. um but clearly they're doing it um because they want to be loyal to the organization so this research might suggest that um yes organizational identity is important so they they feel that they are identifying with this organization but it's also related to this positive reciprocity
0: so in this example sorry so um let's say with with the uh, lying about the spiritual association yeah. shunning and that sort of thing um it, you know if you were to be sort of overlaying this study onto that, mm. would you say it was less to do with identifying as a Jehovah's Witness and more to do with wanting the positive things that come with being a jehovah's witness to keep happening
1: (laughs) yeah i think and i think the two have to come together so that the research suggests that it's not that identity is not important it's just that on its own it's not enough and that's why that suggests why the organization continues to push the idea of living forever in paradise you know the the, all the wonderful things that are going to happen if you stay loyal to jehovah Mm -hmm. Mm. so that's that's your sense is okay it's it's in the future, but I, you know, I'm something good is going to happen to me in the future because mm-hmm. of what I'm doing now. I'm staying loyal, even though I'm saying something that isn't true. Um, yeah. but I'm I'm doing so for the benefit of of Jehovah's organization, and I'm going to get my reward in the new system. So I think I think it absolutely um, can apply there. Okay, cool. okay. And um, there's another paper um, called "The Role of Moral Decoupling." in the causes and consequences of unethical pro-organisational behaviour. So I was about Um,
0: to say that one was a bit better title when it stopped at uncoupling, but then you you took a breath and you carried on. And I was like, I was not as happy as I thought.
1: (laughs) Believe it or not, there's more, but I'm not going to read the rest of it. Yeah, Yeah, this is why why it is hard to do uh, degrees because everything's so complicated. Um, So this is written by Fair Welsh Yam Bear. We and Voulon, Uh 2019. So it's quite a new, quite a recent bit of research, which is great. I like to find ones that are quite uh recent. So this is quite an interesting concept. This is called moral decoupling. So they're looking at this idea of moral decoupling. And the example it gives in the paper is um like people's opinion of Tiger Woods. So if you remember Tiger Woods, um he had a bit of a scandal, he was Found to be firm, cheating on his wife yeah. and and all sorts of you know, um, things that he, his squeaky clean image didn't sort of reconcile, um, so people <laughs> didn't like what he'd done. But the question is, you know, do you still like Tiger Woods? Um, and where moral decoupling works, it says you basically say, well, I don't like what he does, or I don't like what he did, but he's still a great golfer. Um, yeah. I mean, the other one for me is like Tom Cruise. Um, I, I I actually so really I like you. Tom Cruise films. Mm. Um, generally and he's actually quite a good actor you know in a sort of limited range that he does um but his obviously his involvement with Scientology and his behavior around that is awful and so sometimes you yeah. have this different difficult dilemma we you
0: discuss know it a lot in terms of um, <clears throat> from a media and English perspective you discuss it <clears throat> a lot when it's like do you stop reading books by people that have bad in your opinion bad opinions or like you know it's often the question with harry potter do you stop engaging with harry potter because you don't feel good about jk rowling um or can you i suppose decouple Mm. it just engage with the media um yeah yeah so it's it's it's, a quite common conversation at the minute isn't it Mm.
1: Hmm. It is, and the the suggestion here is that um, people that are better at doing that, better at moral decoupling, are more likely to do things that are considered to be unethical. Um, so when employees believe that their supervisors, so this is this is a big factor here, which I think is very important. So the the idea is that supervisors set the example of course so if mm-hmm. i as an employee see my supervisor doing things that are, are are unethical but delivering on performance then i'll be more willing to mirror that behavior to, to do the same thing
0: mm-hmm. so
1: um we we and it gives examples like lying to customers withholding information from the public um and when supervisors self-report that they separate ethics from performance. So this ability to separate the ethics from the performance, you know, I've got to do it. I have to do it because it it's, um, I, I just thought about an example in, in sports, so in football or soccer. Um, sometimes we talk about the professional foul. Um, the professional foul is when you foul somebody, you know, you're doing it. You know, you're going to get a yellow card maybe you know you're going to get punished for it but you know you have to do it because maybe the the, the opposition is about to score a goal or something so you'll handball it or you'll kick him up in the mm-hmm. air um and you know it's wrong but you do it anyway because performance comes above the ethics mm-hmm. um and there it seems to be that the example of the leadership is very, very important. So again, that's interesting. Um, and again, applying that to religious settings, again, you know, we can use the same example. Um, if I'm a normal publisher and I see a circuit overseer lying about what shunning actually is, you know, I'm I'm gonna think, well, the ends justify the means essentially, and that's what I must do. Mm-hmm so that's quite interesting um and the final paper i'm gonna look at is by chen chen and sheldon so either a married couple or um or just happened to be two chens that uh, maybe it's a very I, I common did name really i didn't really believe
0: that you were going to say it again i really thought it was going to be chen chen and chen
1: chen chen and chen yeah you know i chen would have squared.
0: it's like when we were going <laughs> to screen once and it just i swear i think we were actually just really tired because it was like four in the morning but we swear it said cruelly like seven times in a row <laughs> They're all just slight variations.
1: <laughs> Anywho. Right. What did they publish? Yeah, so anyway, anyway. So this is the relaxing moral reasoning to win. How organizational identification relates to unethical pro-organizational behavior. Um, so this we're going back here to this um identification, and they actually see a bit more evidence for this for the identification element, which is quite interesting. Um Again, they're testing whether identification with the organisation makes this UPB unethical pro-organisational behaviour more likely, and they're also looking at mediators. So, what things again, coupled with that, tend to create it? Um, so, they look at moral disengagement and competitive inter-organisational relations. Um, so, moral disengagement is quite interesting. This there's three psychological phenomena that. That contributes to moral disengagement. Um, this is related to Bandura, uh, who's a very well known psychologist. Mm-hmm. So, what tends to happen is in order to morally disengage, essentially you're doing three things. Um, the first is to reconstrue unethical acts so as to make them appear amoral. Less immoral or even respectable. So I think that's really interesting. And we do do that, don't we? If we're going to do something immoral, we might or unethical, we might try to um, justify what we're doing as not that bad. Yeah. 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 So it's not it's not that bad, really. This is at the very least, it's just this is the way the game is played. You know, it's uh, it's like if it's you're
0: just, if you're not telling someone something, but yeah. you're not directly lying. You're like, well, we're not that's lying. Right. If they annoying. ask, and you can be like, if they ask, mm-hmm. we'll tell them. If they don't ask, I'm not yeah. going to tell them.
1: And everybody does it. You know, this is mm-hmm. normal for this industry. It's normal that you don't tell people the full cost of ownership. You know, you just, you just sort of don't mention that bit. That's normal. Everybody does that. Um, so that's the first one. The second is to obscure or distort both responsibility for and the consequences of such conduct so um, obscure and distort responsibility and the consequences so yeah it's you know it's not that bad at the end of the day they're not getting hurt that much and it's not really my fault i'm just doing what everybody does you know and my boss has told me to do it anyway so i'm kind of passing the responsibility on to somebody else um, so that's quite interesting and the third one is to devalue the target of the unethical conduct which i think is fascinating
0: to so make them make it sound like well they're not very well they're not very good at what they do anyway so why That's should right. we worry about it <laughs> it's their
1: fault really yeah <laughs> or you know it's who cares they, about they them ask
0: if yeah if they were clever enough to ask and <laughs> i would have told them the truth That's but they right. were not So
1: yeah who cares about the muggles so mm. yeah it's um it's that kind of uh, yeah justified because actually they don't deserve to be treated any differently um so that's i think that's quite interesting and the inter-organizational element there is is competition so i think again that's very very interesting so the greater the sense that you are in competition with another or other organizations the more you're likely to do unethical things Mm -hmm. um and that again makes sense it's another reason why cults in particular and organizations often try to create a very much us and them sort of environment mm. you know you, you start to feel under siege if you're under siege whether that be through competitors or others um then you're you feel this increased sense of well you just have to do what it takes because we're under attack mm. um and cults do that brilliantly you know it really is all about persecution 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 and we're up against the the rest of the evil world and the evil system of things and then you start to justify um things that you probably wouldn't justify otherwise so that's quite okay. i think that's all really interesting Thank you for listening to Cult Hackers, an indie podcast. That means we're not part of a big media organisation with huge advertising budgets and massive reach. So just by listening to this, you're supporting the little guy. The hardest thing for us is not content. We love recording episodes and talking to amazing and interesting people. Now, by far, the hardest thing is getting in front of the potential millions of listeners out there with millions of podcasts scrambling for attention. And here's where you can help, simply by telling people about the podcast. Just telling somebody about it can really help. You can share an episode on social media or private messaging using your app, or on some apps you can leave a rating, better still, say a few words. So please help us get cult hackers in front of more people. And now back to the podcast.
0: So that sort of sets the scene then. So this, hmm. is this this was part one. <laughs> so yeah, so
1: that's it. the, I suppose that's the organisational psychology element of it. Through
0: um, the lens of business.
1: Yeah, and, and what all of these do, it's, it's kind of seeing the individuals within the organisation less. You're seeing them less in a way. We're, we're saying that this is situational that organizations create these conditions that drive people's behavior. Um, so that's more social psychology, really. Okay. Um, what we're going to do now is think about the individuals, because all of that so far has assumed that these people are generally good people, let's say, mm. generally make ethical choices. Um, but it's the situation, it's the organization that creates that, that thing that's happening. Uh, what we're going to have a look at now is a bit more kind of individual psychology because uh, we're going to talk about the dark triad. Um, yes. So have you come across the dark triad before? No. Obviously <laughs> not because you thought it was an anime.
0: <laughs> yes, or it sounds like it would be in an anime.
1: <laughs> yeah, so we did this in our um, undergraduate course, it, and it is kind of fascinating. It's it, There's something about it. But basically, the dark triad are three psychological... Tendencies, traits mm. that are that tend to be quite high in criminals and people that do bad things. Um, so these three
0: something called the dark triad is in fact not something we should be aspiring toward. No, strangely to enough <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was expecting enough. It to be the three step <laughs> program to happiness. Right. <laughs>
1: no so the first characteristic is this thing called Machiavellianism okay. Machiavellianism so um as a English uh you may have come across machiavelli
0: well it's one of those things that I think would be great on our shared favorite podcast potentially of origin stories because mm. and maybe they've already done this one I'm working my way through their back catalog but it's one of those things <laughs> that gets thrown around a lot but the mm the actual origins of what does it mean to be Machiavellian, Yeah. we didn't end up covering. <laughs> but they did mention Interesting. It, yeah. Okay. So what do yeah. you mean?
1: Well, Mach- Machiavelli um, is a historical character who actually lived and he wrote a book called The Prince, I think it's called. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of the rule book for politicians, I believe. You know, all politicians will have read – um the prince but um uh, machiavellianism is is this um it's a it's a set of behaviors that um I'll quote here the paper it's um, um the paper I'm taking this from actually is le breton uh, Shivadekar Grimaldi, um, and they define Machiavellianism as being a strategy of social conduct that involves manipulating others for personal gain. So, this is the character yes. in court. So, imagine going back to the kings and queens, the characters behind the scenes that are doing it's all a the triangulator, mm. you know, and you
0: triangulate, so you don't talk to the person you actually want to do something, you talk to <laughs> the other points on the triangle such that they yeah do what mm. you want them to do
1: yeah they're very and there this uh, there's there's a debate as to how much the man was actually like this but there is a sense that um it's a lot of uh, sneakiness there's mm-hmm. unethical behavior there's lying there's threats there's you know um the dark arts really, um mm-hmm. Machiavellianism is really all about that. So it's this manipulation of people, getting them to do what you want them to do. They don't often or they don't always know that they're doing your bidding, you know. So um you're 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 putting ideas in their heads. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Inception, ultimately Machiavellian.
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose. So um the my point here is that if you're that type of person then no surprise that in organizations then you behave badly so i think it's important yep. to realize that it it sometimes it is situational but sometimes it is just because there are some really bad actors mm-hmm. in these organizations um you know in as a jehovah's witness there would be certain characters sometimes elders who would behave in in pretty unpleasant ways actually and sometimes you wondered whether they did it because they enjoyed it. Mm. Um, So, yeah, you do get some actually quite unpleasant people. And obviously power attracts this type of person. So um, no surprise that they often get quite high up in organizations or at least um, have some level of power and control. So that's the first one. That's just one, yeah. So that's one of the triad. And the second one is narcissism. Um, So we know about narcissism it's kind of been a bit of a buzzword for for the last couple of years um so again i I want to read the definition of this from the paper because it's quite good Um higher levels of narcissism are likely to a harbor feelings of superiority driven by an inflated or grandiose sense of self B, have a dysfunctional need for excessive attention and admiration. Uh, C, have a propensity for engaging in exploitative acts or behaviours. And D, lack empathy tending toward callousness. Mm. So that nicely defines narcissism. And again, you know, you can imagine in organisations, people doing bad things because that's the way they are. You know, they, Mm. they just want to be the person in power and have everybody love them clearly cult leaders a lot of cult leaders are likely to have this dark triad um i don't know if there's any good research that's been done to support that so but that would Mm -hmm. be my hypothesis that um cult leaders often have high levels of these dark triad psychological traits to Mm -hmm. them
0: Don't keep us in suspense. What is the third? Uh, the
1: final one is psychopathy, Um, (laughs) and yeah. So, um, and again, I'll I'll just read the definition of that. Um, This is actually the quoting from Williams et al. Uh, Mm -hmm. They summarise psychopathy along four key dimensions: interpersonal manipulation. So, for for example, grandiosity, lying, superficial charm. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, callous affect. Uh, lack of empathy lack of remorse uh, thirdly erratic lifestyle that's impulsivity irresponsibility and sensation seeking and fourth criminal tendencies um, antisocial or counterproductive behavior um, in this article they they do make a distinction between clinical and subclinical um, examples of psychopathy in particular because psychopathy is actually a um it's, it's in the dsm it's it is actually recognised as a uh, psychological condition. Mm-hmm. Um, it but,
0: includes things like, um, like sociopath and psychopath, doesn't it? Those
1: sorts of things. Yeah. So, so sociop- as far as I understand it, sociopathy isn't part of the DSM, but it's it's a kind of more ex- It explains um, psychopathic behaviour, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, psychopathy is actually defined as a right. as a, as a medical condition or psychological condition i should say mm-hmm. but um but yeah there is this clinical and subclinical diagnosis so um i would say you know you can be a bit of a psychopath believe it or not you know um That's whereas not a you know, line. <laughs> no, exactly yeah yeah so some people won't won't go into the area where they are, are criminals, but um, they still have psychopathic tendencies, yeah. um, which is quite interesting. I, I watched a television program about this topic, um, and the researcher who was researching it realised that he actually had a lot of the qualities that he was looking at in psychopathy, mm-hmm. which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, so yeah, the the, the dark triad. So sometimes people do bad things in organisations because they're bad people. It can yeah, be as simple as that. Are,
0: you know? Do you think that... So here's, here's a question. Because obviously most... Oh, we we spend a lot of time acknowledging that people are in, in cults are um, victims of cults as well. Mm. And we don't like to kind of talk badly about the rank and file of groups. Cause, mm. you know, but we also interview people that have had really bad experiences with people mm. that are just in the group at the same kind of level as them. You know. Yeah. So do you think that is because there's more people you know with this kind of dark triad or is it something else like what's what's going on
1: so uh i would uh, obviously i've not done any research so whatever i say is just just an opinion really um but i I would i would suggest that is the most likely situation is that if you were to measure the amount of people with these dark triad uh, traits in occult compared to people that have them outside of a cult, I would be surprised if there was much of a difference in mm-hmm. in the amount of people um, that, that have these qualities. I, yeah. I think I don't think cults attract people with these, these no. apart think... from the leadership. The leadership, yeah, so, so, yes.
0: So, then, mm-hmm. so it's like the general population, again, this is yeah. just sort of theorising, you think will probably be the same, but obviously power attracts those kinds of yeah. people, regardless of if it's in a cult or not in a cult, but obviously in a mm. cult it could have the potential to be more dangerous in a way because you've got even more control and power over people's lives
1: but if if you're this sort of person then yeah. um it, you know what yeah. better what better situation to find yourself in than than the leader of a cult you know it is it is absolutely tailor made for you mm. yeah mm. um so let's let's sort of apply this now to or or let's think about the cultic and religious factors here um because we've we've demonstrated that these sorts of things so unethical behavior can happen because people are essentially bad um or it can be because of this identification with the organization and this sense of reciprocity um and we also do these moral We sort of disengage from morals sometimes on the basis of performance is more important. So we've seen that, Um, but in cults it has this extra. If it's religious, it has this extra element, which is that you think you're doing it for God or for a much greater cause, and I think that adds a whole other layer of, uh, you know, danger to this. This situation um, and I th- i was thinking there's a quote that I was trying to find I found it in the end it's by Blaise Pascal who says men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know that is so true isn't it mm-hmm. so people sometimes do, th- do terrible things we know this um, because they think that it's what God wants them to do or that god is telling them to do it or it's for the greater good
0: all the time
1: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. um Um, people people also um so uh, again i was thinking about this this lying question because most people know that lying is is generally unethical um but you know there's there's situations where you might lie um and that would be completely ethical. So, if the Nazis were trying to find Anne Frank and they asked you, "Where does she live?" You know, are you going to give her away because because you can't lie? Well, obviously not. It's so,
0: effective altruism thing, isn't it? You know, yeah,
1: yeah. So sometimes lying is completely ethical, but um, generally speaking, if there's no consequences, then you would you would mm. expect to tell the truth. That's the moral and ethical stance. Um, but again when i was a witness the the question i was or i was asked to think about is does the person asking have a right to know and this is why i think this is how they justify telling lies to governments um, Um, or to other authorities about their processes and the things that they do because actually you can always say that you know god's law comes before man's therefore they don't have a right to know that information and so that justifies or can justify pretty much anything um so there there have been uh, my memory is very hazy about it so i'm not going to go into it but i do remember as a child a situation cropping up where a person was expected to, to lie to the authorities um or say something wasn't true. I remember me saying, "Well, that's wrong because lying is wrong." But no, it's not lying because the person doesn't have a right to know, which I think is very, very interesting. Well, um,
0: lying, spades a spade.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Lying yeah, is lying. but this again, you know, um, claiming that disfellowshipping shunning doesn't mm-hmm. affect people's relationships at all—only spiritual relationships—that mm-hmm. is a lie, um, and they know it's a lie. Still, they are able to say it because they, as I said, the answer will be well, they don't have a right to know this. You
0: know? Yeah, and I suppose also in another thing as well is um, hiding the information around. the mm. So a lot of a lot of religious groups have, um, you know, been found out to be hiding um, sort of sexual assault mm-hmm. um, information um, and something that a few people, when they've came on and talked about it with us have said that they were kind of advised don't take your brother to court that's right um so i suppose there's this thing of not wanting to be the one that you know blows the whistle yeah. <laughs> um
1: absolutely because
0: yeah there's it, it's not just about individual instances it's about the whole image thing isn't
1: it as well. yes that and that's um that that can be particularly difficult for organizations that try to have a particular image um, and Jehovah's witnesses are, are particular examples of that. You know, their very name is testifying or testimony to their God. And so, you know, I was brought up to think about every single thing that I did. Is that going to bring praise to Jehovah's name? And if I was naughty at school or if I did something wrong, you know, that was doubly painful because not just that I got into trouble, but I was bespurching Jehovah's name. And and that's so it's yeah, it it's the the tendency to hide things that make the organization look bad is mm-hmm. just so great there because it's you know, this this worry, this fear of yeah. um of damaging the reputation. But you know, all organizations worry about their reputation, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's particularly bad within um, these sorts of religious groups I think
0: because I guess the way we're talking about it as well is that most people generally obviously we've discussed this dark triad kind of group as the outlier but generally people do want to kind of follow the status quo and do the right thing don't they you know like you say most people know that lying is wrong or that most people want to do the ethical thing. Hmm. Um, hmm. So I suppose that's why it's interesting to see how these sort of studies show how how organisations can get around the natural inclination to do the right thing. Because yeah. I, I think positive, I want to kind of be positive hmm. in saying that I think people generally do want to do the right thing. Um, and that, I think so. Yeah, and that's hmm. why these groups are having to, you know, I suppose go to fairly great length to make it so that people get comfortable with doing the not right thing.
1: Yeah, and and they're they're able to to twist what is right, you know. So if you're able to change the definition of what right and wrong is, then of course then uh, people will again happily, cheerfully do what everybody else thinks are terrible things, but they think they are doing something wonderful. You know, a mm. suicide bomber. Um, they're not doing it because they think what they're doing is evil. They're doing it because they genuinely believe what they're doing is right. Um, I suppose, and that's the power of yeah. it.
0: I suppose what would be good to touch on as well. So I was recently watching the Twin Flames documentary. So that's around mm. another sort of cult group. Yeah, um, yeah. And there was a really interesting point from Yanya um, on there. So Yanya Lalic mm. It's been on the show. Um, with us before, um, sort of an expert in, in the in the cult scene. And um, she was talking about how in groups, or at least in cultic groups, everyone kind of becomes a perpetrator mm. as well. Because, you know, you're expected to uphold all of the same stuff that's being thrust upon you. That's You know, you're a victim of it, but then you're also expected to yeah. do that to others or, you know, keep mm. people... Following the rules, whatever, um, and you know that was quite interesting. So, I think for people that have come out, that's something that is quite hard. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. And um, actually, related to that is something else I jotted down in my in my notes was that a zealotry sometimes is a mechanism to fight against co- cognitive dissonance. So, and I think I felt this quite strongly as uh, a cult member was. You know, if I could pioneer, if I could spend more time on the ministry, if I could do this thing or that thing, that would demonstrate my faith. So, when you have doubts, um, it, it's easy to overcompensate, essentially, and try and do everything you Double can.
0: Down.
1: Yeah, and you do that even though you you know deep down you know. I mean, we've seen examples of this with um, people who are vehemently opposed to homosexuality and to gay people and they they've passed laws and tried to you know ban all sorts of activity um and then we find out that they themselves have had homosexual affairs or they actually are gay um and it's this overcompensating for uh, you know, you're trying to hold a line. How do I hold this line? I I double down. I do more. I do more. I do more. And in doing more, you're proving to yourself that you really do believe it. Um, but it, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, work
0: at a certain point. Mm,
1: that yeah, but I think that's why uh, that actually is why people sometimes do um, bad things. You know, I mean, I, I don't feel like I did. I, I'm I'm lucky that I never became an elder because. I think when you're an elder, you you know... You're quickly you, part
0: of the system then, aren't you? You are,
1: and if you do judicial committees, then, you know, you're personally responsible for separating families sometimes. Um, and that must weigh quite heavily, especially if you leave. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do sympathise with former elders who've had to come to terms with, with some of that. I, I mm-hmm. you know, do feel empathy for, for those people. I, I never uh, had that to worry about but you know we I do remember knocking on doors and talking to people about the truth as we called it um who just you know what was I doing you know I remember calling on old people um they would buy the magazines offers and um going for coffee and it was just you know I suppose I'd have somebody to chat to but we were just telling them nonsense i remember I, I think i've said this before i don't know if i've said it on the podcast but i remember knocking on this old woman's door and telling her about the new system and how everything god was going to make everything new and the paradise and all mm. of that um and she looked at me and she said is it coming down my street <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. and i said yeah it is yeah it is would you like these magazines it tells you all about it mm. um, you know, and that's a bit heartless, really, isn't it? You know, and and I had my doubts at the time, but I'm coming on telling this person this load of nonsense, um, and I'm getting a bit of magazine placement in. So, there are times when I, I feel a bit of guilt for that, and um, you know, the times when I've walked past disfellowship people or my attitudes towards gay people, um, these are things that I regret now. Mm-hmm. Um things I'm, I may have said in the past about that. So I think we all do carry some guilt. Um, but yeah, we we are, as you're quite rightly quoting Janja Dalic, we we are all perpetrators to some degree when we are in these groups. And we're doing it because that's what we're expected to do. Um, and part of it is to prove to ourselves that we are in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there was one, one final um element that that i because i asked your mum actually before i started this i just said to why you know why do you think people do bad things as part of organizations and she said um fear and going along with the crowd and i thought yeah they're really good ones actually and so i wanted to touch on solomon ash's experiments into conformity um So, and these have been sort of redone and done over and over again. They're really interesting experiments. I think the classic Solomon Ash one was you give, uh, you get one person who's actually, the experiment is being done on one subject, one participant. The rest of the group in a room are all confederates and the teacher is there. And you've got two lines. He's showing you two lines. And uh, it's basically which one is the longest line or are they the same length? So it's a very right. simple task. Um, yes. And obviously everybody gives a wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from this poor sod um, who is looking at everybody thinking, I must I must, I must, I must be misunderstanding it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they, of course, more often than not, and just go along with everybody else knowing the very evidence of their own eyes um, and there's been other experiments where you've got a room oh, full yeah. of people um, on a computer on, on computers and the smoke coming through the door underneath the door and everybody's kind of so happily Mm -hmm. tapping away at their computer this poor one guy is looking around thinking why is nobody leaving this Um, is like
0: Darren brown when he selects people (laughs) for his stuff isn't it Mm. he's looking for people that go with the crowd that's the whole point so they start dinging a bell don't they and yes people stand Mm. up that are plants and then you know eventually the person that has yeah. no idea what's going on starts standing up with that's the right. bell and sitting down yeah. Um, yeah. and obviously those are the people he wants for his um, right. <laughs> his, yes. um, his wacky sanity. shows but yeah, yeah so going the crowd is it, <laughs> a thing
1: yeah yeah so um, that's that's important and fear yes of course people do part of that is fear of of standing out from the crowd so mm. fear is related to that but sometimes the fear is, you know, I'll get told off if I don't do this or I, um, repercussions. you know, repercussions. Yeah. So, of course, that those are very important, too. So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, lots of reasons then why seemingly good people, normal people can do some really bad things in organizations, um, which applies to everybody, really,
0: mm-hmm. us
1: included, whether we're a member of a cult or not, you know. These ethical questions come up in the workplace as well. So I think it's a really interesting topic.
0: So that was, I think this has been a little yeah. pat on the back time. I think we've done quite a good job there. It took you on a journey, <laughs> yeah. dear listener. Uh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of interesting areas mm. that you can get into more if you want to. Um, I'll put the links yeah. on the show notes if you want to check out the papers. Yeah. There's quite a lot of technical stuff in there. But, you mm. don't have a read. but
0: yeah, I think it was a nice way of talking it. Through, in the sense that mm. it could be quite a depressing slog. You know what I mean? Of just like, um, yeah, y- you know why? You know why yeah. this could have been a sad episode? But I think it was just more interesting and just taking a bit of a top-down look at it and to understand mm. why, and not not a pointing fingers and saying everyone's horrible. It's just a how can people do this from? Yeah, you know,
1: it, it's it's kind of. Um, I think it is uh good to think about this every now and again because it is easy for us to end up in positions where we're doing things that we've really regretted. You know, um the chief executive the former chief executive of the post office um she was recently awarded a CBE which is like a a, an honor from the Queen um Mm -hmm. and there's been a big clamour for her to give that back now and she's Mm -hmm. kind of public enemy number one this this executive Mm -hmm. um and Uh, I'm, you know, she doesn't deserve an award, definitely. So she should give it back or it should be taken Mm -hmm. off her. But I think there's a, you know, there's a risk that she just becomes the full woman for everything, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Clearly, it wasn't all her. I should mention that Fujitsu were the uh, makers of the software. So um, they're as as guilty as. um, Of the post office um, in many ways. Which apparently they're
0: still using that software.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And just landed a nice big contract for something else apparently as well.
0: Yeah, this is the thing.
1: Anyway, um, that'll do. Um, So I just wanted to say before we go, next week um, we have uh, a very interesting interview with Carmel Michael. um, And she has made a a short film actually so i will put the link to that short film on the show notes too so it gives you a chance to watch that do your homework yes right you know it's good Mm -hmm. to do a bit of homework so you can Mm -hmm. watch the film it's great it's very it's very easy to watch it's it's quite short um so we'll be we've already done that interview but i'll be editing that next week so we'll bring that to you um yeah next time so hang in for that one Good. All right. Well, thank you, Celine. Enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. And we'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye
0: bye. Bye.